the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. get it underway for a tuesday elizabeth is here hi elizabeth how you doing uh good morning to you you've had your coffee already uh, a few gulps <laughs> all right so you're ready to go you're all ready to go well now i'm going to start off kind of with a bummer today for rock and roll fans kind of a bummer today it was just on this day in 1977 baton rouge oh Leonard Skinner plane crashed and of course uh, took out one of the great and upcoming rock and roll bands of all time. A little music for everybody this morning. that Freebird was on Leonard Skinner's first album. The first album said pronounced Leonard Skinner on the front of it. All right, and uh, they they went on to be one of the monsters of Southern rock. And uh, to this day, the biggest argument among Southern rock fans is whether they were the greatest or the Allman Brothers were the greatest. I mean, between those two groups, they really put out uh, put out some music. But on this date in 1977, during a flight from Greenville, South Carolina, to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Leonard Skinner's tour plane crashed in a heavily wooded area 
of southeastern Mississippi during a failed, failed emergency landing attempt, killing band members Ronnie Van Sant, Steve Gaines, and Cassie Gaines, as well as the band's assistant road manager and the plane's pilot and co-pilot. Twenty other people on that plane survived the crash. A lot of people don't realize that that it didn't kill everybody on the plane. Uh, it, uh, it got five people. Uh, the original core of Leonard Skinner, Ronnie Van Sant, Bob Burns, Gary uh, Rossington, Alan Collins, and Larry Junstrom first came together under the name My Backyard back in 1964. Uh, they were a Jacksonville, Florida band, a uh, group of teenagers just got together. Uh, they uh, went by that name and several others. The group developed its chops, played local and regional gigs throughout the 60s, early 70s, then finally broke out nationally in 1973 following, uh, following the adoption of the name Leonard Skinner. Now, Heidi, I know that you're, you kind of like classic rock. I know your father loves classic rock. Do you, do you know why... They named themselves Leonard Skinner. Not a clue. They were named. They named themselves after uh, a teacher who was their nemesis, a gym teacher by the name of Leonard Skinner. Wow, <laughs> that's nuts. Yeah, that's that's why they named themselves Leonard Skinner. And on top of that, here's the really weird part about this whole story. Uh, during the summer of uh, 1977 and uh, coming to the end. There was another rock band, Elizabeth, that was going to take that plane. They went out and inspected the plane, talked to the flight crew and thought, nah, I don't think so. Do you know the name of that band? You know, I did then. <laughs> I don't remember anymore, Dave. Yeah, Steve Tyler and Aerosmith. That's right. That's right. That's right. And he's been in the news lately too. Unbelievable. Think about that. That's almost that's a, that gives me chills. Almost like uh, Buddy when Buddy, Buddy Holly died. That's and, what I was and thinking the, of. And the when big, the big bopper got on the plane instead of Waylon, instead of Waylon Jennings. Yeah. Waylon yeah. Jennings gave yeah. up his seat to the big bopper. That yep. sounds like yep. some sort of premise for a movie. Like, what if it was Aerosmith instead of Leonard Skinner? Oh, and an then alternative some, history kind of thing. Yeah, there's some sort Good of story. like alternate universe movie. I gotta talk, maybe I should talk to Mark Pellegrini and talk to him about writing a yeah. script, huh? Good story. That, Good would, story. that would be an interesting. Would be really interesting to say say the least. Um, how long was Leonard Skinner around? They weren't around very long. 1977. I mean, basically, that the of part years. of the core of the band. Uh, 73, they broke. 77, the plane crash. Although yeah. they're still four years. They're still, you know, performing today with the remaining members of the group. Uh, they still come out and play and do their thing. People still go out thinking that they're seeing the original Leonard Skinner, and and they're not. Again. Uh, the original core of the band was Ronnie Van Sant, Bob Burns, Gary Russington, Alan Collins, and Larry uh, Junstrom. Uh, in the plane crash, Ronnie Van Sant was killed. And uh, Steve Gaines, along with Cassie Gaines, their uh, assistant road manager in the plane's pilot and co-pilot. Uh, let me just read this end of this story I've got in front of me. This is really... 
this is this is kind of harrowing as you listen to it. It says that uh, let's see the 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 charter Convair two forty began to run out of fuel at six thousand feet en route to Baton Rouge. The plane's crew, whom the National Transportation Safety Board would hold responsible for the mishap in the accident report, which was issued eight months later, radioed Houston Air Traffic Control as the plane lost altitude, asking for directions to the nearest airfield. Now, I'm going to read from the, uh, the actual tape. Here's what was said. We're low on fuel, and we've just about... So we're just about out of it, the pilot told Houston Center at approximately 642. We want vectors to Macomb Airfield post-haste, please, sir. Last transmission, approximately 13 minutes later, the plane crashed just outside of Gillsburg, Mississippi. Amazing. Amazing. So they ran out of gas. How do you run out of gas? I mean, seriously, in an airplane... You're supposed to sit down, fill out your you know your flight plan, and and you calculate all that. Evidently, this is the stuff Aerosmith understood. These guys evidently weren't doing, and decided they didn't want to fly with them. Unbelievable. So, little somebody boo booed. Yeah. Well, you know, and here we are. Yeah, I, I'd be interested to see what the. Uh, the transportation board said about all that. I've never sat down and read uh, their report. Maybe I should sit down and read their report and uh, see what. It Some has of to my say. cousins had uh, a weekend getaway um, just last week, and they took a small airplane to wherever they were supposed to go, and they made it out all right. Like they they made it home safely. Yeah. But I was just like, <laughs> no small planes, please. Uh, and and with everything uh, going on with um with the basketball player and his daughter that um you know died in the plane crash. Are you talking about year? Kobe Bryant? Kobe Bryant. Yeah, that was, yes. hel- that was so, helicopter. Oh, that was a helicopter. But still, you know, you never know. This is the way. This is the way the privileged, you know, travel around the country, though, small planes. And, of course, you have to trust that pilot that's on your staff in most cases. Yeah, you got to make back sure you about wanna, Skinner, Yeah, you want to make sure the people that are flying know what they're doing. You're exactly right. Well, exactly. Today, you know, Kobe Bryant, that he, this pilot worked for him and did not do his job. Yep, he broke, he broke a job. lot of rules. Not to, not to go down another rabbit hole, but yeah. you know you got to trust the got to trust that pilot. <laughs> yeah, he took off in fog that he shouldn't have taken off in. Uh, uh, that, and that, that was is today a in 1977. Yep, mm. today in 1977, a few years ago, a lot of water's gone under the bridge for us, uh, Elizabeth. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I was only three then. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, I just it's it's amazing to me. I mean, you think about uh, the people that we remember as great rock and roll people who passed away in plane crashes. I mean, Ricky Nelson, remember that one? Yes, yes. Now that one I do remember because I was very much enamored of him. And it was very hurt. In fact, that's probably one of the first times I was ever personally affected, you know, yeah. by one of my favorites. Um, uh, yeah. well, the, the only reason I know the whole Buddy Holly story is because of Don McLean. I mean, come on. Let's be let's be honest here, you know, with yeah. American yeah. Pie. 
and uh, all and the he, material from that uh, that song. Yeah, and if you don't know about American Pie, you should look up the lyrics. It tells the story. It's not just fun little words. It tells the story. Yeah, and it talks about rock and roll from that point on. You know? True. True. It's about the gesture. The whole culture. The gesture. Everybody knows about the gesture. Anyway, with that all said, uh, we'll come back yeah. and, and we'll get into the news of the day now. We'll get into <laughs> the, we'll get into the present, I best best way to put it, because that story is news in and of itself, nineteen seventy seven. Uh, also back in uh, the eighties, this is the day that Burt Lancaster died. What a great actor he was. Yes. Yes. What what no, movie? What movie do you remember Burt Lancaster in? Normally, you know the movies. Well, there's normally one movie everybody says. Birdman he and Alcatraz. Was, yeah, I was going to say Birdman and Alcatraz, but he was in which one? I get him confused. One of the Bible movies. Um, no. Anyway. No, he didn't do a Bible no. movie. Uh. Uh-uh. Okay, no. I'm wrong. I'm no, wrong. See, you're the movie guy. That's, I'm not. I, I remember movies. But. Chuck Heston did all the Bible movies. That's the one I'm thinking of. I had him confused. Oh, by, by the way, I got to tell you, great, a great, a little aside here, and then we are going to take a break at that point. Uh, got to give a pressure break Kirk, here, though. Yeah, Kirk <laughs> Douglas. Kirk Douglas uh, had been considered for the part of Moses in the Ten Commandments. And, and something, oh, wow. and, and something, it just would not have worked. I mean, come on, with the dimple, I don't think that would have worked. Moses didn't. You know, I, I, have that, a dimple that's a that. funny picture in my mind. <laughs> you know, as far God as that's concerned. But the bottom line was, he did Spartacus because he wanted to do a big screen movie like a Ten Commandments or a Ben Hur, and both of those movies have been right. done by Charlton Heston. See, I'm thinking of Ben Hur. I had him confused. Yeah. Now you know the movies. I'm just telling you, wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Last night I sat and started watching TMC. I had to go to bed, but I did get to watch uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in The Hound of the Baskervilles, which I think is one of the Ooh. best Sherlock Holmes movies. Oh. And right after that, it was going to be. Uh, uh, Dracula was coming on, and then the mummy was coming on. The ones with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, which personally I believe are as good, or maybe even a little better than the Universal monster movies. But that's something we can discuss at another time. A break, and then we come back. More information coming out about Hunter Biden, about Joe Biden, and documents showing alleged Hunter Biden signature, and the FBI. Uh, has contacted the computer repair store owner now. We'll talk about it when we return. Elizabeth Otolaro is with me, coming up at 7 o'clock, the Bible, guys. And then uh, Elizabeth back with me at 6 o'clock tonight. It's all here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, so big story that is out uh, in the media, Elizabeth, not covered by most of the national media, is the story about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, but things are starting to continue to happen. Uh, Giuliani has come out and said a lot more information is going to come out this week. Uh, One of the big stories that has come out is uh, Fox News has documents that appear to show Hunter Biden's signature on paperwork from the Delaware Computer Repair Shop 
where the former vice president's son reportedly dropped off a laptop that included emails related to his overseas business dealings. Additional documents obtained by Fox News include FBI paperwork uh, that details the Bureau's interactions with John Paul Mac Isaac, the owner of the Mac shop, who reported the laptop's contents to authorities, which was first reported by the New York Post. Isaac received a subpoena to testify before U.S. District Court in Delaware on December 9th, 2019. One page shows what appears to be serial numbers for a laptop and hard drive taken into possession. So far, the FBI and Delaware's U.S. Attorney's Office have declined to publicly comment on this situation. Biden's overseas business dealings have been under renewed scrutiny since last week when the New York Post published emails purportedly exchanged between Biden and associates in China and uh, the Ukraine. And uh, Fox News spoke to one of the people who was copied on these emails saying we've confirmed its authenticity. Sources told Fox News that, quote, the big guy in these uh, emails is a reference to former Vice President Joe Biden. So uh, as millions of people go to the polls right now, uh, there is this story lingering uh, in front of everybody, and no one is uh, giving it really coverage except for Fox and uh, some of the folks that are on the uh, Internet. It's really sad. And we're learning that perhaps the FBI has known about all of this since December of last year. Almost a year they've known about this. Almost a year. Almost a year. You tell me whether Christopher Ray is doing his job or not. Look at what he has not done about a lot of the things that have happened this past summer and then this that we now find out about. I'm telling you what, it makes an average person think that all of our institutions are pretty much rotted from the inside out. Pretty pretty bad. This is uh, this is pretty damning stuff as I've been following this story and uh, and and reading this. It is really really Disappointing to say that I'm disappointed in this is a is really an understatement. I mean, I'm just telling you, it's an understatement. Yes. There's there's three there's three tracks to this story. Okay. There's the one track on on a real high level. There's the one track with Hunter Biden, his father, and how they sold out our country to all these foreign countries just for money and influence. If you believe what you see, I'll get back to that in a moment. Russian disinformation. Number two. It's the failure, the obvious, blatant, obvious now by the facts, failure of our press to do their jobs. Well, they right? still refuse to do it. Well, again, it's clear now if, if anybody could have ignored the fact that they're not doing the job, and of course this is a favorite topic for you and me because of our backgrounds, but the press is not doing its job, and this makes it very, very obviously clear. The third piece is just what you mentioned. It's the FBI. Once again, we find out that there are people, we've been told for 
how many years now? Oh, it was only the people at the top. Now that we know everything that we know about Hillary, all right, Hillary, do you remember all that? It hadn't been that long ago. We know all that. Yeah, that's now the old dossier thing. The FBI hasn't done squat that we can see, and I don't see any results. All right. Well, stay with me. We'll come back. We're going to talk further about this. We've got news to get to. And uh, for Trump supporters, I think I have some good news for them that we'll get into as we continue the Dave Ellswick Show. But right now, let's get to the news, and then we'll have more for you in just a moment. All right, back with you here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Let's continue on. Elizabeth and I uh, are going to take on, uh, in the final hour of the show today, which is at 6 o'clock, we're going to talk about the new debate rules coming up on Thursday night, which you can hear the debate here on uh, 101.1 FM, The Answer, at 8 o'clock. You won't want to miss any of it. It should be very interesting to see what uh, happens during this debate. We know what went down the first debate going to be interesting to see what goes down in the last debate. Hey, MIT, uh, Elizabeth, and we'll, we'll post all these stories for everybody on my Facebook page, said that Twitter's crackdown on the controversial New York Post story that purported to show new emails from Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, about his business dealings while Joe Biden was the vice president in the Obama administration, quote, nearly doubled the story's visibility and triggered the so-called Streisand effect, uh, amplifying the post claims according to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and a high-profile media intelligence uh, firm uh, as well. Uh, when Twitter banned and then unbanned links to a questionably sourced New York Post article about Joe Biden's son, and by the way, uh, you say that it was questionably sourced. Well, here's let, let me take you to the Atlantic. They've got a story out right now about the president from two years ago. Two years ago, uh, that uh, they're they're publishing as gospel, and all the media is jumping all over it. And uh, there's a whole lot more holes in that story than in this Hunter Biden story. Just goes to show that the media is firmly in the in in the laps of the Democrats for this election, no doubt about it. Uh, they said that uh, the stated intention was to prevent people from spreading harmful false material as America heads into the final stretch of the elect, uh, election campaign. But thanks to the cycle of misinformation and claims from conservatives that social media platforms are deliberately censoring their views. I would think that we can all probably see that. Uh, Twitter managed to do the opposite of what it intended to do. In fact, Twitter's efforts triggered a massive spike in interest in the story. Uh, That's according to uh, Zignal Labs, a media intelligence firm. Shares of the Post article nearly doubled after Twitter started suppressing it. The incident was a real-time example of what Zignil Labs calls the Streisand effect, a social phenomena that occurs when an attempt to hide, remove, or censor information has the unintended consequence of further publicizing that information, often via the Internet. The name comes from singer Barbara Streisand's efforts 
in 2003 to suppress a photo of her Malibu, California residence over security concerns. Uh, and according to Zignel Labs, the effect was immediate and significant. So uh, what they tried to do, they weren't able to do. And because they weren't able to do it, they probably brought more attention to the story itself. And that's the problem with censorship. You know, it does not work. Yeah, everybody, <laughs> want, everybody wants to know what it is that somebody is telling them they're not supposed to know. You cannot see it. You cannot see it. Yeah. Just another example, and there's so many of them out there right now. Again, what I said before the break, it's not, it's not the media anymore, Dave. We've lost it. I don't know that we're going to get it back unless citizen journalists and, like you say, some of the folks on the Internet, mostly conservative news outlets, uh, can ever reach some sort of a you know, large enough presence to make a difference. We've got to all work hard. It's really slipping away. Did you, uh, did you read the story I sent to you during the break about the lady who works for Facebook and takes care of uh, deciding what gets uh, what gets blocked and what doesn't get blocked? Incestuous, huh? Yeah. You think? Yeah. <laughs> You've got the story right before you, I think. Uh, give the give that insight into our to our listeners. They'll they'll want to hear this. Out there. I mean, seriously, this is this is a really serious. Uh, allegation. I'm, I'll, I'll pull it up. I got it right here in front of me. Well, I got it right here, and it's it's okay. I think. Well, if my computer will bring it to me, it is a more than an allegation. It's a truthful, I believe, a truthful uh, fact is that she was a former policy advisor to former Vice President Joe Biden. She actually worked on matters in Ukraine and other parts of that uh, that part of the world. She is now, I'm trying to find the exact right title, she's the public policy and legal expert working at Facebook. Yeah, specializing in election information. Integrity. Election integrity. This individual is responsible for integrity at Facebook. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's like finding out what well, we have found out the last week and a half about the presidential commissions, that they're all basically uh, former Democrat staffers. You know, what we already know about CNN, MSNBC, uh, <laughs> they all go off and find a job as a, you know, retire from the government after doing all the crooked stuff with Hillary and then go off and get a job with media. Yeah. So they can then tell us what we're not supposed to talk about. Well, she also works for the Atlantic Council, which is not uh, a uh, right-leaning organization in any way, shape, or form. It's left-leaning. She's a non-resident no. senior fellow there with an, her expertise being NATO and uh, security and defense. Uh, that's the other information uh, people and, need to know. Well, and here's the scarier thing to think about. If these folks get elected, these people are going to be in your cabinet again and running our country. More power than they have even now. She was the special policy advisor for Europe and Eurasia to former U.S. Vice President Joe Biden, senior policy advisor to Ambassador Samantha Power at the United States Mission to the United Nations, director for Russia at the National Security Council, and the chief of staff for European and NATO policy 
in the office of the Secretary of Defense. There you go. There you go. All right. So she was deep. She worked deeply with the Democrats uh, during the Obama administration and then with the vice president himself. And she's the one that's uh, pulling the trigger on. Is that a story we should put on uh, on us? Is that is that true? Yeah, I don't uh, I don't buy her for a, a minute uh, as far as as that's concerned. Well, and they've proven what how many people have they totally banned? And I don't think last I looked last night, the New York Post on Twitter is still not allowed to even use their account because Twitter has deemed their factual reporting as misleading. I'm telling you, we're in deep trouble in this country. We're in deep trouble. Well, especially what happens in third world countries. They control the narrative from the government down. Well, not even tell you what not, not just third world countries. It happens in the Soviet Union. Uh, it did back with Pravda. It happened with Hitler, uh, with Goebbels. It it happens with Mao in China. Major, you know, major, major countries. Uh, when the media is in the pocket, and I do mean in the pocket of, uh, you know, the governing uh, people, uh, bad things tend to happen. The image I have is a puppet and, you know, like a ventriloquist doll that, you know, they had the mouth moving because somebody's hand was somewhere. Yep, in the back. It's a little more crude than that. It's a little more crude than that. Well, it was but, in the back, but yeah. I'm just saying, you, you know. We're they just they are controlling the, the narrative. And this is the beginning of socialism. You know it, and I know it. Those of us who are behind President Trump, if we get him elected in two weeks' time, we have a job to do. We have to step up. This man has taken abuse beyond abuse yeah. on every level, from every angle. And if we can get him reelected, we have a job to do. We must stand up and back him and back the policies and get this country back. We've got to get busy. You know, I don't know what it will take. I don't know what it's going to take to to save journalism. To be honest, because I don't know that it's because journalism, Mm -hmm. as it is being taught in our universities, is not taught the way you and I were taught uh, back in the late '60s, early '70s at all. It is not objective. It is uh, advocacy journalism, and uh, we're we're seeing where that has led. Because at that point, you're telling journalists pick a side. That's exactly what you're telling them with advocacy journalism, and that's not, uh, you know, that's that's not what journalists are supposed to do. Look, I stepped out of being a journalist back in the '80s uh, at WIBC and went to do talk radio. At that point, I ceased to be a journalist. Now, I use some of the things that I learned from journalism when I'm uh, out. Uh, looking for facts and things of that nature, and as I develop my sources and things of that nature, but I mix that in with uh, what I believe and in what I think. Uh, I never did that with my uh, news stories. My news stories were newsmakers stating uh, what they believed in a story, and I, I left it there. I did not try to tell the readers or in my case, the listeners, what they should think about what they were hearing. There was a time when a journalist would pride themselves on being very objective, presenting all the facts in a very objective way. That used to be the standard. 
that many folks, you know, tried to achieve. And I'm sad to say that is no longer the case. I honestly do believe that they're being taught. I've been told this. If the, the results are pretty apparent. I think new students are being taught that it's your duty to advocate for your beliefs. Well, yeah, that's a, what I'm as saying. As a so-called journalist. That's and what, that's I, what you I'm know, saying. That's not even journalism. That's why I don't use that word. I call it propaganda because that's what it is. Well, bottom line, advocacy journalism. I mean, that's that's the term that mm-hmm. they use now. It's not objective mm-hmm. journalism. It's advocacy. My teachers that I had would be or are right now rolling in their grave mm-hmm. with what uh, what some uh, of these people are doing and, and what uh, some of these uh, reporters do when they're in the White House asking questions, things of that nature. All right, we got thirteen. Here. Well, hold on a second. We got thirteen minutes to the top. Yeah, we got to take a break. Let's get that in, and you can bring up what you got. You got something there. Hold on to it. Hold it in your in your fist tightly, and you can bring it up when we come back here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Bible guys coming up at seven oh five. If you still have a question, it is Bible guys at SalemLR.com. We got about nine questions thus far. See how many more questions we can get before they get into the studio. All right, let's uh, finish up this hour. We've got about eight minutes. There's something that you had that you wanted to talk about before we get to the final story I have for us for this hour, uh, Elizabeth. What was it? Well, I was just thinking of the meaning of the words and the way our journalists are changing those words. And oh, like the AP. with Bill Clinton, the meaning of is, remember? Sure. <laughs> Depends on what the meaning of is is. Yeah, trying to change what we all know, and it goes all the way through to what they're doing today and all of our things that we're reading about. Even today, Adam Schiff is telling us that Russian disinformation is what we're seeing about Hunter Biden. But they expect us to believe them when they use those words, but we're not allowed to say those words. Yeah, well, intelligence has come out and said there is no proof that there's been any kind of Russia interference in that story whatsoever. And now Schiff has come back and said, Mr. Ratliff is not telling you the, quote, whole story. So, see, they're twisting the words to make us believe what they think they want us to believe. Here's the key. That's how it starts. That's the key pot calling the kettle black about not telling the whole story. Come on, Well, Schiff. projection, right? Yeah. Right, back to projection. Sam I mean, Schiff is the worst liar that's out there. I mean, he, he's just, look, I'm going to just say it outright. That that guy is a worse liar. He's a worse liar than anybody I've ever seen of. He's worse than Pelosi. He's a reverse Pinocchio. Yeah. His nose should only go off, you know, if he tells the truth. If he goes to him, he tells the truth, yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. So, hey, coming up at 6 o'clock, I'm, I want to talk about what you're talking about more here. So that means that the story I've got sitting in front of me will have to wait until 6 o'clock since the Bible guys are coming up at 7. And, uh, oh, tease, tease, tease. Yeah, I want to, I want to talk about <laughs> what uh, the folks uh, over in, in England are saying about the election, especially Robert Cahaley, uh, one oh, from yeah. the Trafalgar group. I want to talk. He's the one who got it really right in 2016. So we want to see what, right. what is he saying about 2020. And uh, 
join me at six and Elizabeth at six and I'll tell you what he's telling us. And it's it's I will say this much about it. It's good news. All right. We got about uh, five minutes. Let's go back and, and let's talk about how the media and especially, for instance, the AP. Now, I, I mean, I'm re- I am super disappointed in the Associated Press uh, who puts out the style book for written journalism. And they have uh, said that you can't use the word riot anymore because that's a racist term. You cannot say something is a riot because it carries the connotation of race. When I say riot or when I read the definition of riot, it doesn't mean anything Anything about race. race. Not at all. This is something that they're doing. It's like saying that now we will capitalize black, and, and they're also going to capitalize white now, but it was in the, at the beginning because they felt that uh, uh, people from uh, the black race had been, uh, you know, given a, uh, you know, the dookie stick, so to speak, that they, they were going to, to uh, capitalize that word to give it more gravitas and would not capitalize white. That changed after uh, people started complaining about it. This is the AP. Again, that's the Bible for how everyone uh, writes uh, standards. And when they start telling you again, very, I mean, again, this is so in front of our faces. How can people miss this? This is what I well, think. Well, I don't think that they are. Right I, don't, I don't think people, face. hey, if you look at how many newspapers exist today? Well, not I'm just many, asking. and I think most people seem to get their news on Facebook is what we read. Which is and even worse. What, that is a very sad, sad situation, especially what we now understand. Not that what we know. We've always known that they've tried to control what you see on Facebook. Now we know proven facts in front of us, and people still use it, still talk about it, and that's where most people seem to get their news now. And then a lot of gaslighting going on. I mean, just tons. What you see is not what you see. I mean, that's what Shift is doing. What you're you're seeing is not what Mm -hmm. you're seeing. You know, those pictures of Hunter Biden, uh, those, you know, just disregard those things they're not important i'm just telling you it's 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 a scary time that we live in it really is and i've talked about this before i've 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 talked about uh you know the hot media of tele of uh, radio and cold media of of uh, of tv i i've talked about uh how uh as we got more and more uh, citizen journalism going on out there as we got more and more of these different sites happening out there that we would become more and more tribal and we're there now well that's what they want again black and white capitalizing those words to ensure the best they can that we can be divided up by color you know class money you make so much money all the rich people need to be over you know taxed oh how dare you own a business you must be better off than me i'm just going to tear your business down it's all about class separation they're trying to divide us on every level they use language to do so again what happened back in and you know the history much better than me i understand the big things 
The things have to do with getting people where they cannot even talk to each other because the words don't mean from one thing to the next. It's 1984 come to real. I mean, well, it's really Mc, happening. McLuhan was, was right on, you know, was right on uh, back in the 60s. And uh, he's the one who I've read most of the material that he's he's written and Marshall McLuhan, and I got to tell you, if you've not read Marshall McLuhan, it will help you understand what is happening. Time, by the way, uh, Elizabeth, I again at six o'clock tonight. You ready? See you at six. All right, you're up next. Let's go out a little, little bit of uh, Leonard's for you. us today in studio uh the only one not here right now steve and he's on his way he said he'd be a few minutes late steve Hess will be here we got uh, scott stewart pastor of agape is here he was gone last week because uh, i was just talking to him about 34th wedding anniversary 34 that's right congratulations thank you very much that's, that's fantastic you're of the age that making 50 is doable that's right. Yes, I am. I can't make 50. I, well, I could, but I'll be like 90-something years old. <laughs> no, I'd be 80-something. I'd be almost 90 mm-hmm. if I make 50. You'll make it, bro. How about you, Billy? I'm doing wonderful. Yeah, how long have you been married? Uh, we just celebrated 20 years. See? Back in That's July. fantastic. So good for you, man. Yeah, a lot of... I know Steve's married for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I... Re- I'll ask him when he gets here. I, I'm thinking it's like 65 years. Yeah, yeah you know... Uh, uh, Scott so, said they went and saw Noah. Uh, Steve's been married since Noah. Yeah, so, yeah. That's what I was going to say. He's been married since Noah was so, around. I, I think Absolutely. being married to Steve would be like, you know, one one year of marriage to Steve is like, uh, was that with a dog, dog year? Just yeah, like seven. Like seven. Exactly. <laughs> being married seven years to a regular person. So uh, so Casey's been married like 87 years. Yeah, she's been married for a long time. Absolutely. All right. So I hope he's listening. He'll be here in just I'm I hope sure she's that listening. he's listening. I'm sure he's listening. <laughs> All right, dear Bible guys, what does it mean to be a true disciple of Jesus? Man, that's like being a running back in football, oh. and they sealed the outside, and there ain't nothing but green between you and the in the end zone, guys. It's up to you. Go ahead. Oh wow, what a what a big topic. Uh, you know, you could take uh, you could take a month of Sundays and do a, a series on mm-hmm. that. Um, I, I think probably. Um, this question probably comes from a place of people misunderstanding what it means to be a disciple. And I think most people think that being a disciple is basically being born again. Uh, yeah. And there's an automatic assumption that if I'm born again, I'm a disciple. No. Uh, no, you're not. <laughs> it, it's like, um, you know, it's like if you go fishing once, you're not really a fisherman. Right. You just went fishing. Or if you're, you've played golf one time, you're not really a golfer. 
until it becomes a habitual part of the way that you live your life. It becomes an integral part of how you do things. He, Jesus made several comments, uh, things like um, he said, if you actually I did a series years ago um, and the series was titled something to the effect why you are not a disciple. You don't die. It, that's basically it. He said, he said, if you put your hand to the plow and look back, you cannot be my disciple. So mm-hmm. you've obviously put your hand to the plow. Uh, so you've, you've accepted him. But then if you look back, then you cannot be a disciple. If you love your father, your mother more than me, then you cannot be a disciple. It's amazing how many times the Bible actually says you cannot be uh, a disciple. And uh, and so basically this is an all-consuming life um, uh, pursuit that has a much more to do uh much more than just believing in Jesus. It's actually becomes a lifestyle of, of carrying a cross to, um, uh, to follow him. Yeah. So if we go back and look at what discipleship was in its proper context, um, disciples were those who were students of a master and their role and goal was to emulate their master so that they could teach the way their master taught. Um, and I guess the question would be, how many people today who are calling themselves disciples are living the way he lived, by the rules that he lived by, um, doing the work that he did? Now and, we're not. Now we're not saying are you walking around in sandals and yeah, a toga? And that's, that's, that's not, not what's what going on. That's not um, what we're saying here. But uh, but are you living the lifestyle that he lived? Are you? Um, you know, he flat out said, uh, "If you love me, uh, obey." Uh, obey. Uh, the, the word obey comes up a lot, and that is not a word as Americans we are particularly happy with, um, as the modern church we are particularly happy with. Uh, we don't like to be told what to do, right? Um, that's kind of the the uh, American nature is that we don't like to be told what well, to we do. we believe in individuality, um, mm. but for the most part. But we have to get past that um, because to be, uh, if we want to call Jesus Lord, then we have to understand that that means he gets to tell us what to do, right? I mean, that, that's that's what that means. If if he is the king, not only my savior, but my king, not only my savior, but my Lord, then his word is the final word in my life. So that discipleship means more than just being a, hey, I showed up. I, I got my get out of hell free card punched. Yeah. So. yeah, well, it goes back, I think, to what we've said many times, and that is that everybody wants a savior. Very few people want a Lord. Absolutely. Or and, a master. Yes. And so, um, you know, everybody wants to, to get, go out get out a hell free card. But as far as actually living the life uh, that you're commanded to live is a totally different story. And a true disciple is someone who is going to embrace not only the salvific part of Jesus, but also the lordship uh, of Jesus in your life, which means you give up. The Bible actually says you've got to die mm-hmm. in order to live. And uh, uh, I think within, within Hebrew thought, um, they believe that to, to truly be a a disciple of someone is um, to actually become. Uh, what, what is the phrase? Is uh, to um, you have to actually become your your uh, your teacher. You you have to become the person that you're following. So um, so you're meant to actually not just uh, not just emulate the person, but you're actually meant to become exactly like them. Which means um, th- this is how this is how far it goes. Have you ever, Dave? Have you ever noticed? Have you been? You haven't been to Israel yet, have you? I have not. But have you ever noticed how that some Jews might wear a black fedora, and some might wear a fur hat, and some might wear knickers, and some might might wear 
uh, a long black coat. And I've seen enough pictures that I know what you're talking okay, about. You, you know why they do that? The reason they do that is because the original rabbi that started that vein dressed that way. Yeah. So they're actually they're actually trying to do everything they can. Now that goes. I mean, obviously, we're not talking about wearing sandals, but I'm saying that the way they were thinking was, I'm going to emulate my teacher uh, in every way. As a matter of fact, this, this gets a little on the gross side, mm. but uh, if a rabbi is eating and he finishes his food and, he, and it's actually he he can't eat all of it's too much and he leaves, his students will actually feed, eat his food, finish his plate because they want to eat what their master was eating. I mean, they've gone that far with it. Some of them will even go to a grave of a departed master and lay over the tombstone or lay on the ground. Uh, that's how extreme they are with their discipleship. That And so uh, we're talking about someone who's fully given themselves over to what they eat, what they think, how they dress, to following uh, after someone's teaching. So it's not throwing your hand up in a crowd saying, I'm a believer now. It's actually saying, I am dead to the way I used to be, and I've picked up and followed after this master with my uh, with my entire heart and my entire soul. All right. Steve Hess is here. So, Steve, can you be saved and not be a disciple? No. I'm not no, you're not. I don't hear you, bro. I'm on. Push that back on the on the back of the microphones. Okay, now I hear you. I hear you. There you go. There you are. Ah. Um, can you be saved and not be a disciple? Hmm. Is there a separation between the two? Did you guys start talking about this at zero six hundred? Or <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we. Uh, this is the first question. Here's what the question said today that we've got. What does it yeah. mean to be a true disciple of Jesus? Yeah, I think they probably hit on most of the stuff that I would be talking about, which is following and emulating, not just making a confession. And that comes from the idea of someone who thinks like a Greek versus someone who thinks like a Hebrew. Someone who thinks like a Greek, so someone uh, says, I'm a believer, and now they can join the monkeys. Um, or someone who hey, says, I'm a believer. Right. No, I get yeah, you get, now, you I get, now I get to get it. Now, now, yeah. I, I figured you'd have been all over. I thought I was going to have to explain it to no, these two. I, just, I wasn't, I wasn't <laughs> thinking in that vein right now, but that's okay. But in a Hebraic thought is you're actually following and doing what the rabbi, the master, the teacher, in our case, the Messiah, the master is teaching. So yes, you have to emulate and do not just say, I believe. Okay, and that's not a multiple choice thing. Like, well, we like that saying, but we don't right, particularly right. like that one. And this this is a full on. This is like he said: put your hands to the plow. You can't look back. Uh, once you've done that, then you cannot be a disciple. You might still be holding onto the plow, but you can't be a disciple any longer. And and maybe maybe you can be saved, but you've not. I think there's different different levels, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, you think about the disciples of Jesus. He had disciples. But he had some disciples that were uh, that circul- that were in were in an orbit circle, that yeah. was the twelve. Then he had another orbit which was the three, which is a closer orbit to him. Mm-hmm. And so, so and you know, he had a bigger orbit around the twelve. Too, wait, maybe right? the seventy and then the, the hundred and twenty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. thousands in. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Billy, right. have, Billy and I have said this this way about other things, and I think it applies. And that is, you might be saved, but when you get to the kingdom, your name's going to be leased. Yeah. Yeah. So he who teaches against the laws will be called least in the kingdom. So they get to go to the kingdom. They're just going to be least. So yeah. you may be saved, but when you get there, everybody's going to go, what's up, least? Yeah. You yeah. didn't do anything for the kingdom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're, we're all getting a new name. Right? I don't, don't know what least will be. I don't, I don't know. Right. I don't, I don't know that name going is going to be, be right. there. I always but. tell people I'm. Uh, we're all getting a new name when we get there, and I'm just praying when I get my white stone with my new name on it. When I look down, it doesn't say least. Like, <laughs> oh, okay. no. Now, now here's a question for you. Is... 
our word when we say sanctification is that discipleship i think that it it's are related yeah they're you have to be sanctified if you're going to be a disciple. Yeah, um, I would call it the process of becoming. It's it's what it's the fruit of becoming a disciple. Right. You're not right. going to be yeah. fully perfected well until we are. Morning. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, I forgot it completely. What <laughs> 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 just kidding. As, as, as I gave him a compliment and completely, <laughs> completely him up. Yeah. It was out of I know, right? Order right? That was so <laughs> out of character for Billy to say so positive to just me that it, it just threw me off. But no, it's the it's the process of um of when we become a believer or come, become a disciple that will will move. We won't be perfected like him until we actually. Yeah. We are like him, as the scripture says. But and I'll just go ahead and throw in here that when uh, within within Hebrew Hebrew thought, when uh, when rabbis make rulings on you know things, and then in other words, when they interpret a scripture for you, that ruling is called in Hebrew is called is called a halachic thing, right? And the word halach means actually to to uh, has, has to do with walking. So basically, it's being this is the way that we're all going to walk together. So it very much has to do with with living this life, and sanctification comes along with that. Sanctification goes along with the line of being separated, being set apart from. Actually, the word Pharisee means separated. They uh, they had separated themselves from the things of this world. Actually, Jesus was a Pharisee uh, when mm-hmm. it comes to theological thought. He would have been a Pharisee, you know. So he believed in the resurrection, yeah, mm-hmm. and angels and supernatural, whereas the Sadducees did not, and the Zealots were. You know, military people, and you had the Bothuthians and the Herodians, and and you had, uh, you know, you had different groupings within Judaism, and he would align theologically with the Pharisees who believed all the supernatural and the in heaven and so forth. All right, got to get a break in. Let's do that. All right. So again, uh, this is not about me during this hour. This is the Bible guys. They are here and ready to answer your questions. Our first question that we dealt with was uh, what seems like a simple one. But really, we could have spent the whole hour talking about it. What does it mean to be a true disciple uh, of Jesus? All right, uh, let me go to another question here. Let's see here. What do we got here? I got to find it. Okay, that's not it. That's it. Here we go. I thought this was an interesting. Dear Bible guys, I was wondering... If you might be able to explain why I hear so many different ways of saying Hebrew words uh, from Jewish people themselves. I know that we just completed the Feast of Tabernacles, but I've heard some Jewish people call it Sukkot, but most seem to call it Sukkos. Mm-hmm. Uh, these same people do not call the seventh day of the week Sabbat, like you guys say, but they call it Sabas. Can you guys explain what is up with that? Is it just a dialect thing or an American way of saying things? Thank you. Now, this is quite simple. Uh, there, there are three dialects in Hebrew. Um, there's what we call the Sephardic uh, dialect, uh, which is what is spoken in Israel today, and uh, that's what that's what we, the three of us, refer to. Like they'll, like we'll say Shabbat. Um, but uh, there, a very large uh, dialect is called the Ashkenazi dialect, and they will say Shabbos. Uh, where we would say Sukkot, uh, they would say Sukkos. So it's basically, it's a dialect. The the Tav, which is the letter, basically it's like a letter T, at the end of a word where we say Shabbat and, and Sukkot, uh, in Ashkenazi Hebrew, they pronounce a final Tav or a final T at the sound. They pronounce it as an S. 
And that's why there's a difference there. So it's just dialect. There's a, the third dialect is called Yemenite, uh, which they actually pronounce the, the, th, the last T as a th, like a TH sound. And most scholars will say that that was the dialect that would have been spoken during the first century. Uh, but today we speak the, the Sephardic. So it's all, it's all of it's correct. It's just different dialects. Okay, so it's like the difference between you guys and y'all. Yep. It kind of, yeah, kind of, yeah. English, uh, British I mean, and American English type thing, yeah. So yeah, it's all it's okay. all the same thing. So the, there's 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 no you know we're not contradicting each other. It's just a different way of saying the same stuff. All right. You Question. Guys want, no. Anything else from you guys? Nope. 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 I got it right. We're all good. You got it right. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ding, right. ding ding ding. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Bible guys, can you discuss abortion? During this SCOTUS thing, there have been a lot of talk about Roe v. Wade. What is the right Christian answer? Oh, I just jumped on me. What is the right Christian answer to the question? Can you vote for someone who is in favor of abortion? I ask only because so many Christians do vote for people who support abortion, and many pastors and churches endorse candidates that support it. Uh, many churches and pastors don't even talk about this from the pulpit, which I think is sad. Also, do you think it's okay for churches to be involved in politics, and how far is too far? Well, we'll leave the last part of that question for the last part of the question. Abortion. Right. I don't, I don't, yeah, I've never even, even when I was a heathen, I never understood, um, people who would just you know throw their children in the trash i've just never understood it it's the highest form of immorality that i could see the most sanctified place on this planet um that you're gonna take a knife and and carve out a human being and just throw it away or take and carve it up and then sell it and use it for scientific research i mean I don't even know how you can even begin to honestly approach that question as a, if you're going to say that you're a believer in Christ and say, oh, well, yeah, they're for killing and slaughter and unborn children. But, you know, I, the rest of their platform's OK. I just I can't even I don't even know how to answer that question. I really don't. It's just it's really that simple. There, There's a um, there's a story. I think it's in Jeremiah <clears throat> where back in um, ancient Israel times, they used to uh, give their children over to Molech. And what that meant was is after their children were born, they would sacrifice their children. They would take their live children and they would put them in this, um, I think it was a bronze statue mm-hmm. where it had its hands held out. And then they, they would drop their child in there and it would, the kid would just burn up. And, and God said, this to give you an idea, and this would actually go into a larger theological question, um, that he said, I didn't even think I would have to make a commandment right. because this is so evil. That God says, neither did it enter my mind that right. you could Never do something so wicked that I would have to tell you not to do it. And you could make a very strong spiritual case that what we're watching today is the sacrifice of the kids to Molech for self. All right. Keep that thought. We'll come back, talk more about it. But Rush is up next. Hey, if you're looking for a piece of jewelry that is just exceptional and unique, because look, I'll be honest with you, you can go to the big box stores and find a nice piece of jewelry, but that doesn't guarantee that you're going to sit down maybe at a dinner somewhere and, uh, you know, your significant other is going to sit down and on their ring uh, or on their finger will be a ring that's on the finger of the person at the next table. And, and, and when it comes to women, one thing I do know, they don't like dresses that look the same. 
I got to believe that they don't like jewelry that looks the same. And so I would suggest that you hit, you head over to Hillcrest Designer Jewelry, 3000 Cavanaugh, and let Eric make sure that never happens to you because he will design a piece of jewelry that is absolutely unique to the person that you're giving it to. He's got a, a machine that they feed all the information into. It draws the ring, and you can see it in 3D so that you can actually see what the ring's going to look like before they even start making it. Uh, when they sit down and they talk to you about what gemstones you want to put on it, uh, you're going to save money because he's got tons. Uh, well, not tons, but he, that's hyperbole. He's got a lot of gemstones, uh, loose gemstones, right there at the jewelry shop. And that's why he buzzes you in, to be honest. He wants to make sure you don't have a, you know, that you're you're coming in and it's, it's a little bit more difficult for him because everybody's wearing a mask, wearing mask now. But I'm just saying, you come in and you ask about diamonds. He's got diamonds. You won't believe how many diamonds he has. And he can send you literally, th- save you literally thousands of dollars. Not hundreds, thousands of dollars uh, on, on uh, you know, the, the gemstones you want if it is diamonds. So if it's colored gemstones, save you money there too. Bottom line, go see Eric, and he'll help you out. 3,000 Kavanaugh. If you're getting married, if you're going to, you know, pop the question and you you want an engagement ring, go see him about that. Engagement rings are typically diamond rings. He'll save you a lot, a lot of money. And then you can stash that money away either for the wedding or for the honeymoon. That's Hillcrest Designer Jewelry up on uh, 3,000 Kavanaugh up in the Heights. You know where it's at. Go in and check him out and stop by and, and meet with Eric. You'll love him. He's a great guy. All right, guys, uh, I know that, uh, uh, Scott, you had something else that you wanted to say about abortion. Go right ahead. Uh, yeah, um, just uh, related back to what uh, what Steve was saying, you know, this, this uh, in a way, I wish we called it something different. I wish we called it um, murder or slaughter uh, or something like that, because I think you get so used to the word abortion that it's almost clean. You know, it's just a, it's like a political topic. It's not well, it's a medical what it term. clinical. Yeah. So I think we should just call it for what it is. Uh, it's murder. Uh, and like Steve said, you know, would you, I mean, how can to vote for someone? You say, well, yeah, I agree with 90% of their platform, but yeah, but they also believe in just randomly killing people, but that's okay. I mean, you can't, as a believer, you can't go beyond that. Um, but uh, just to give a different perspective, the, there's a story uh, in the scripture. It kind of gives God's perspective on this. And, um, um, it's, in, it's, it's in the book of Exodus where actually what happens is there's these two guys and they're, they're kind of roughhousing, they're fighting and they hit a woman who's pregnant. They hit her and they, they, uh, they knock her down. They do something when they run, they run into her in some way. Um, and actually she miscarriages at that point. And the Lord is, when he sees that he actually, the, God gave a law about that, that mm-hmm. if that happens, if you, um, unintentionally cause a woman to abort her baby then then you are going to be punished for what you uh, for what you have done so god even holds people who accidentally cause a miscarriage to be punished think about how much more he would require some type of repercussion for those who intentionally actually quote cause a miscarriage or kill a, or kill a child so from god's perspective it is wrong from the get go whether it's uh, accidental or obviously uh, intentional. So, uh, yeah, that you can use that as a um, as a litmus test for sure. That that ver or that story is actually one of the precursors to an eye for an eye, a, a yeah. limb for a limb. Right. 
because if the baby was born and, and didn't die, and if it came out with a defective arm because of it, then you had to pay the family for the um, amount of the loss of an arm. Wow. Yeah. Right. Just something to keep in mind. Also keep in mind that Jesus can forgive. Yeah, Indeed. absolutely. Indeed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's, you know, yeah, it's a terrible, terrible, terrible sin, but it is forgivable. Amen. And Paul, Paul was a murderer. Yeah, you know, Paul went around Stephen. and you know, killed him. Yeah, so so God God is merciful I mean, and gracious. Stephen's and one that we know. Of. Yeah, I mean he did a lot more. He yeah. said that. Yeah, but for for sure, I mean Paul even said after he got born again, he said, "I have wronged no man." Yet we know what he did. But mm-hmm. in the new creation reality, God forgives, and that's all that's all cleansed away. But uh, I think in context of the question, the person is kind of um, asking, um, "Is it a political thing?" But could you vote for someone who who endorses it? So mm-hmm. I. I mean, for me, I think that's an emphatic no. Yeah, yeah, absolutely an emphatic no. Which brings us to our next question. Dear Bible guys, do you guys use a litmus test for political candidates? If so, I think it would be helpful for those of us listening to hear what kind of tests you put people through to earn or lose your vote. I'd like to hear if Dave has a test he uses as well. I don't think you guys would just vote for someone because they have an R besides their name. Am I right? From my own personal opinion, yes, you're exactly right. Uh, I would never vote for somebody who has a D in front of their name because the platform of the Democratic Party is so abhorrent that I could not vote for it. Uh, but if there's a Republican out there who you know, carries uh, the same kind of thought process, I wouldn't vote for them either. Right. You know, At that point, I just wouldn't vote. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. maybe there's somebody out there that I, I would vote for. Uh, I, I, you know, I might be a, a libertarian or something like that, but I would vote to, you know, f- not for that person at all. That's it's not not the R or the D. Well, it's not the R, and <laughs> right. it's definitely not the D. All right, I'll just let you know because there's too many things in their platform and too many things not in their platform that I just cannot get my hands around. And yeah. how about you guys? So interestingly, I was just having this um, discussion. My my oldest is finally old enough this year to vote. So we, we've been having this discussion around our house. And, and I think to boil it all down to super simple is we vote our values. Um, we, go, we go do the research. We go um, look at the voter guide and say whose values here line up with what it is we believe. Uh, I want to be able to stand pure before the Lord when he calls me to account for this as well, right? This is part of uh, this is part of rulership in our in our country. We think of the politicians as being the rulers of this country, but in reality it's supposed to be us and we we rule by our vote. Um, so and that's one of those things that you're going to stand accountable for. So I want to be able to, to look the Lord in the eye and go look. Uh, I probably didn't always get it right, but as often as I could, mm-hmm. I voted the values that represented what your word says are supposed to be my core values. So that that's in our home. That's how we vote. Yeah, it's pretty much the same. And from a political perspective, you know, I couldn't even get anywhere near the Democratic platform as for the reasons Dave said. But um, I would like to see something. Even the Republican is not Republic anymore. It's right. not the uh, full representative government with limited uh, governmental oversight and that kind of stuff. I would like to see something a 
little bit even more conservative, um, closer to libertarians, but without all the free drugs and sex, <laughs> you know, just smaller government. I mean, that's, you know, libertarian platform yeah. is the, the full libertarian. And abortion, way. if yep. you get yep. into the national yep. platform, it depends on the candidate. Mm. Yep. A libertarian, there are libertarians who believe that that means a woman's body is hers, she can kill her unborn child. Then there's the libertarians who will say, no, that's absolutely wrong. That uh, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, mm-hmm. you know, goes to in the womb as well. Yeah. Um, for me, I think that um, if I if I do have a litmus test, I think that um, I always I always consider the um, the abortion issue. I also mm-hmm. consider the treatment of Israel as mm-hmm. a um, mm-hmm. as what their policy is uh, related to that. Um, and um, I think yeah, the values thing is something that's important. But I think that. Um, Biblically, what are the, what kind of positions have they done? What are their, what is their voting record? What have they voted on in the past, as opposed to what they're saying now? I'm right. not going to be duped or you know manipulated by well, you voted for forty some odd years and you always voted for this, and now you're telling me that you're not going to govern that way. I'm sorry, I'm not there an idiot. Forty seven years, yeah, right. Not right. to name uh, anybody, right? Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, I, I I would use a litmus test, but I, I try to use the. The, the biblical value what is a what is the biblical worldview but there's a verse of scripture here i'm, I'm reading out of uh, exodus 19 this is when when moses needed help governing the children of israel and um and this is governing you know three million people and and uh, this was the counsel that was given to him it says you shall select from uh, the people able or capable men so in other words they, they have to be capable skilled people and here are such as fear God. So you have to have someone who is who is a God-fearer, who lives in fear of God. And that has a lot of implications. You're going to keep the law. You're going to do what God wants. You're going to fear God. Men of truth. So this is we're looking for someone who is a truth-teller, someone who is not uh, lying or deceiving us. Hating covetousness, someone who's not in it just for their own uh, gain. It says such men, uh, uh, and, and place such men to be rulers. And so I think that if you're, you know, we need to look for people that are that, that that fear God, that are capable of doing the the job, that are men of truth, who are hating covetousness, uh, you know, self aggrandizement and and profit. Uh, and and these men, I think this is a good litmus test to to begin with to put them over you as rulers, as the Bible says. So um, God hasn't changed, and so I think the, His perspective on rulers would be the same today. All right, got to get a break in. Let's do that. We come back. Final segment. Wow, already. Here on the Bible Guys on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, we are down to just about eight and a half minutes. So uh, this next question could take up that eight and a half minutes. Dear Bible Guys, I listened to a CD series recently by Dr. Stewart. By the way, how do we get a hold of CD series by you? You can go to our church's website, aclr.org. And you can buy them? Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, very good. Uh, That is called Idioms for Ignorance. <laughs> I found it really interesting and was hoping he might talk about the idiom of the ravens. I like it that they picked up on the ravens because that's the one I always ask you to talk about because as a Southern former Southern Baptist, you just blew a sermon of mine. Anyway, the idiom of the ravens on the show uh, today. I think the listening audience would really like it. Also, are there any other idioms that he or the other Bible guys might like to tell us about. Mm. Okay. Ravens. Now, let me start by saying I'm not calling anybody, uh, you know, 
an idiot. Uh, the I took the I made the you title said idioms for ignorance. ignorance. Yeah, and you, it doesn't mean if you're ignorant of something that that's not a bad thing. No, it just other means you don't. You, you just don't know. No, no, yeah. So I took it from the, those books called you know like Microsoft for Dummies and things like that. Yeah. So I just took it from that. Uh, yeah, the Bible is full of idioms, and um, you have to understand that um, that um, you know a word might might actually we know what that word says, but we don't know all the time what the word means. Uh, we have all kinds of those idioms in uh, American English. Um, uh, I think I heard you mention a uh, uh, yeah, you mentioned the idiom on the way over. I was listening to the radio, and you said uh, your your professors would be. Um, Rolling in the grave. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, rolling in the They're grave. Not really rolling. <laughs> right. So it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't mean the words that you said. There's a meaning behind it. So you know, and there's lots of idioms like that. At any rate, uh, ravens is one of them. Um, we know that the ravens fed the prophet, and the ravens do things like that. Now, the word raven is a bird. I mean, there's no doubt. Raven is a bird, but the ra- word raven doesn't always mean bird in every situation. If you're using it as an idiomatic expression, and so. Uh, even to this day, there are a group of people in Israel that are called ravens, uh, and these people that are called ravens uh, in today are the Bedouins. Um, they're people who dress uh, with the women dress in black from head to toe. Um, they wear many times they wear a gold kind of face covering that's shaped in a V that looks like a, a beak looking down. They also have a head covering, a little little uh, thing on, that goes on the front of their forehead. It's called a souza, and it actually is shaped like a beak. Uh, and so what they do is they look like birds. They look like ravens. And so they become uh, known as ravens. Uh, scripturally speaking, we know from Leviticus chapter 16, the Bible gives a list of clean and unclean animals. And one of the unclean animals is a raven. So uh, these people who tell stories such as uh, the ravens went down and took meat from the king's table and took it and fed it to the prophet that was in the desert. Well, that's not possible. Because if a raven touches the meat, the meat is now unclean, the prophet can't eat it anyway. So uh, it can't be an actual bird because the meat's now defiled. So the man can't eat it. If he eats it, he's sinning against God who's trying to talk to him. So um, it's good, the, the circle goes around and around. And then you ask the question, well, uh, the prophet was, he stayed at the brook being fed by the ravens, the Bible says, until the brook dried up. Then he had to leave. Um, why Why did the ravens stop bringing food once the brook had dried up? Well, because ravens are be- ravens are Bedouins. When the brook dries up, the Bedouins don't have a place to water They're their moving. sheep, so they move on. Uh, as a matter of fact, and lastly, I'll just say this. <clears throat> In um, Jerome's Vulgate translation, the Latin translation of the Bible, he has a footnote beside the story about the ravens feeding the prophet. And he actually mentions there, he says, the ravens were the inhabitants of a nearby village called Orbu. He actually identifies the ravens as being people. So uh, idiomatically, ravens are um, Bedouins, nomadic people moving around with their herds of sheep, dressed looking like a black bird. Uh, Their tents also are all black, um, covered in uh, black goat hair. So if you're standing on a mountain, you're looking down at a Bedouin village, it looks like a flock of ravens on the ground. Uh, And so um, that's a very short uh, rendition of the uh, story of what um, the actual thing uh, raven was. Now, Noah did send a raven out of the boat. You know, that was an actual bird. But the word raven is also used idiomatically for um, to discover to to explain uh, what a Bedouin was. All right. And wondering, are there other idioms? I mean, there's a lot of let me turn over. Let's get uh, Billy and Steve involved here. Billy, you got a favorite idiom? Uh, well, I think it goes back to the locust, which we were just discussing. Um, 
where we, the the phrase honey and locust and everybody goes, oh, he was eating bugs dipped in honey. And the answer to that is simply, no, he was not. <laughs> that the locust is uh, is actually uh, that that fruit is a fruit of a tree, um, which makes a lot more sense in the um, in the story that is going on there. Uh, he's he's exiled himself. He's he's out away from other folks. Uh, it makes sense that he's looking around the land and going, okay, so what can I get from the land here? And oh, still remain clean. These people were still eating clean. So. Uh, and there are certain bugs, though, if they were bugs, that they could yep. have been eaten. Mm-hmm. You know, there are actually some mentions. Some, I think grasshoppers fall yep. into that category. Yep. Uh, they have to have the bent leg. Uh, well, you want to make sure things. that bent leg's off where you do it. That way they don't, you know, on the way out, yeah, <laughs> well, on the way down. Way down your throat. I'll yeah, tell you a story later. My, How's that? Uh, my oh. favorite um, idioms to share is uh, destroy and fulfill from Matthew uh, 5. Yeah, yeah. If you put, if you understand that when Jesus said he did not come to destroy it, but fulfill Meaning destroy means misinterpret it to scriptures. Fulfill is to properly interpret the scriptures. And then you flow that right into what happens with the Beatitudes. It makes total sense because he'll say, you have heard it said, but I say. So what's he saying? You have heard it destroyed, but I'll fulfill it. So he lays the groundwork with the idioms first. And then now it makes total sense to Beatitudes in context. And then you don't get people... You won't have people say, oh, well, he came to fulfill the law, meaning he's going to put an end to it or bring it to its fullness of its end. And that's you know, because they look it up in English and doesn't realize it's an idiom. All right. And we, yeah, we don't, we don't we don't even apply it you know, like we do. People say, well, he came to fulfill or to finish. Uh, but when since when does finish ever mean to d- destroy uh, your, your car's finished? Does that mean your car is no longer destroyed? It's fit for purpose now. It's ready right. for use. Um, um, but even, yeah, even today, if two rabbis are arguing about a scripture, um, and they don't know, they're trying to figure out which one of them is right. One will accuse the other one of destroying the law. And the response, I'm not destroying, I'm fulfilling it. So this is a very common, uh, rabbinic uh, term used in, uh, in discussion, uh, related to correctly interpreting and incorrectly interpreting. And actually, if you look at the verse right after the one that, that, uh, Steve mentioned, he actually says, okay, here's the deal. If you go out and teach people not to keep the law you are the least in the kingdom of heaven right but if you teach people and show them how to keep it then you'll be called greatest so uh this argument that fulfill means to to get rid of just doesn't uh, just doesn't hold up well this is one reason i like having yawn i mean seriously just because it always makes sense to me that since christ was a jew we should be looking at christianity through a jewish lens amen and uh too often it's not looked at that way that's right that's right and that and that's a mistake on our part i Mm -hmm. believe at that part hey we're out of time we'll get together again next tuesday guys i still got questions i didn't get to today if i didn't get to your question i will get to it next week we'll talk about uh you know things that are of future things you know when's the end coming Mm -hmm. so to speak Uh, i just find people want to know when the end's coming and i don't worry about it the end will come when the end comes i just want to be ready when it comes amen I mean, that's the way I, I look at it. So, Scott, what time does uh, church start on Sunday? Quickly. 9 o'clock and 10.30. All right. Steve, Billy, thank you very much. We go- Let's hit it. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs>
the 6 o'clock hour here on uh, the Dave Ellswick Show. Elizabeth Soltolaro is with me. She was with me in the 6 a.m. hour. Now she's in the 6 p.m. hour, and we've got a lot of things to talk about, uh, Elizabeth. We've talked over what we want to kind of touch base on here during this hour. We'll try to get to all of it. There's a lot of information to try to share with people. Uh, first of all, the story that is out there from the National Review, and I think uh, you have it, so you've posted it on my Facebook page, how Trump might be winning. Kyle Smith wrote the article. Uh, it was published today by the National Review, and it talks about uh, the folks at, uh, oh, what's the name of the uh, uh the people who do, who who did this, I've got to find it here. Hold on, the Tra- uh, Trafalgar group. Uh, they're Trafalgar. the they're the yeah. only polling group who got the twenty sixteen election exactly right. And uh, the head of the Trafalgar group, Robert Gahaley, is saying that he doesn't see Trump losing. He sees Trump winning uh, the election with roughly. 280 electoral votes he predicts trump, he predicts trump is again going to win michigan along with florida georgia north carolina arizona and texas that's what he says uh now that uh, that drops out pennsylvania uh that drops out wisconsin uh there uh but uh he just says that Trump's going to win Michigan this time. He didn't win Michigan the last time. He talks about uh, the voter registrations for the Republicans catching up and hopefully surpassing, but I think they're catching up to this huge uh, you know, uh, lead that the Democrats had because of so many extra voters. They've been on the ground for over a year registering voters in some of those battleground or the republicans have in some of these battleground states well that's the thing that i've read quite extensively on and that is uh four years ago the ground game of the republicans was not all that powerful that is not the case here in 2020 uh they've spent a lot of their money on uh you know, getting people to vote red uh, and uh, doing Internet stuff, but have ex- expended extraordinary amounts of money for the ground game, which they believe is better than what the ground game uh, the Democrats have. And if that is the case, that is a big change from over the years. Typically, the Democrats have always had the big ground game to get out the vote game uh, a game. It seems that they're saying that that's different this year. Now, from what I saw yesterday at the polls, it looks like to me that uh, the people who want to vote for Trump again are turning out in large uh, numbers again, starting out yesterday uh, here, for instance, in Arkansas, and I'm believing uh, there's a couple other states that started yesterday as well. So it's going to be Florida. interesting to see how, yeah, Florida started. So it's going to be interesting to well, see how this all works. Well, it's interesting when you think about it, 
I think it's pretty visible what's going on. It's mostly uh, Democrats generally who think we need to stay home. We need to keep everything shut down. I need to vote by mail. And then there's the other folks, and I know a lot of conservatives who say, you know, I'm going to live my life. I'm going to go vote in person. I'm going to go stand in line. So what we're seeing right now is the conservative side of the House and what we've not seen so far, because we haven't counted all those mail-in votes yet. You know, I think it's pretty interesting. Like you say, the Democrats have had a ground game to get out the vote. I've heard so many Republicans and conservatives this year say, I You know, I'm doing something different rather than knock on doors because people are so uh, you you don't know when you knock on that door, whether the person on the other side of the door is okay with you standing on their porch or not. And so it's very tricky. And I think it's interesting. It's a very different election season for more than one reason. We could have done with just the virus issues or we could have done with just the October surprises. But, no, we get to have them all. That's the year of 2020 for you. But here's the key. The key is this. Republicans are not going to door to door to door to door like they have in the past. They have come up with this new uh, version uh, driven by computer where they get into the micro aspects of going door to door and they're only going to the doors that they know the person either voted in the last election for Trump or lean heavily to vote for Trump in this election. So they're able to cover a lot more people uh, with the people that they have on the ground. That's true. That's true. Technology and all that data collection. <laughs> and they're good at it. Our side is getting a lot better at it. Uh, very, very good at it. Yeah, so, and they have gotten better yeah, at it. Yeah, and that'll change. All right, yeah, so and that's going to change. Let me go back to the, Tafra, the the Trafalgar group. What makes them different from other polling uh, groups? Well, uh, the pollster, and that would be Robert Haley, says that he employs different methods from his competitors and warns that the others are badly underestimating how social <laughs> desirability bias is artificially inflating Joe Biden's numbers. For instance, what did you call that? Uh, social, social desirability bias. bias. People who hate Trump are willing, indeed eager. <laughs> Sorry, I had to sneeze there. And I'm snickering. I'm sorry. I'm sneezing again. (laughs) Anyway, people who hate Trump are willing, indeed, eager to give up their time to talk about how much they hate Trump. Uh, 25 questions to go through. You have to really want your opinion to be counted if you're willing to give away that much of your time for nothing. Voters Mm -hmm. who like Trump not only don't want to be bothered with talking to pollsters, especially pollsters who demand a large chunk of their time, many of them further believe that revealing pro-Trump sympathies could cost them their job or result in other kinds of social sanctions. So a lot of Trump voters, yeah, so a lot of uh, Trump voters are falsely saying that they plan to vote for someone else or falsely saying they are undecided. Haley believes that at least 98.5% of voters have already made up their minds, and that consequently, the daily uh, strum and, and drang of the news cycle that consumes political reporters is essentially meaningless. People know who they are going to vote for and are raring to go. 
said uh, Cahaley, maybe his most startling assertion, is that by a ratio of as much as five to one, Trump favoring voters are high, are harder to nail down. The Biden voter is five times as likely to talk to a pollster as the Trump voter. All pollsters are aware of this factor, but Cahaley thinks it has grown in just the last few weeks when the ratio was more like four to one. Cahaley thinks other pollsters are underestimating this factor. I would agree with him. What do you say? I think I agree. I like the next part of the article where it uses the chocolate metaphor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People but, want to no, stuff their face think, with chocolate again, but they're not telling. Yeah, anybody. can't wait to get out and vote for Trump, and not don't want to tell everybody how much they love their chocolate. But yeah. I'm telling you, you know, I think the intensity is a is an issue that has not changed as far as effect on elections. Intensity has a huge effect on elections, and the intensity is so off the charts for Trump. And when you see the pictures of the Biden uh, events, and some of which there has not been a single individual show up for, the intensity issue is going to be something. And then this issue of the shy Trump voter. Um, I don't think our pollsters learned anything from 2016. No, I don't either. And I've said that all along as the polls have been going on. They're doing polling the same way they did polling. In 2016, in 2012, in 2000, in 1900s, you know, I mean, you go all the way back. They're using the exact same formulas. Hey, we got to get there's more Democrats out there, registered Democrats and Republicans, blah, 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 blah. And that's why they've been wrong over the last few years. Now, they've gotten closer, but they're still been wrong. We talked about it some this morning again in a different way as far as, you know, just being in the tank for the for the left um, that I like that term. What was it? Social desirability bias. Yep. You know, we're all this way. We like seeing the news that reinforces our beliefs. We don't particularly care to look at stuff that doesn't. We want to hear about stuff that you know reinforces our beliefs. We're just the people on the street. Those folks are the folks that are responsible supposedly delivering us factual information and of all people they should be more aware of these biases they have them that's why they do what they do again they're not out there to just do a poll they're out there to reinforce their uh you know take on this whole picture and make you believe that and it's it's really interesting to me that everyone i say everyone many people talk about this bias and and people are aware that it exists but we don't see any self-introspection to, to change that. Again, it's just another telling factor of their point of view, which is we're not out there to tell the truth or the facts on both sides. We're out there to give you a narrative. All right. So let me finish up with what Kahei says, and then we've <laughs> got to take a break. He scoffs at anyone who thinks Trump might lose Georgia or Texas. Not going to happen, he says. He recommends such people check themselves into a rehab immediately. <laughs> He thinks Trump has a small but durable lead in Arizona. And though GOP Senate incumbent Martha McSally is trailing her Democratic challenger, Mark Kelly, she's within five points and still has a decent shot of winning. As for Michigan, the Republican challenger, John James, is in a strong position to pull off an upset of uh, the incumbent Gary Peters and is bringing voters to the polls who will vote for Trump. 
Kahaley says Trump is stronger among blacks and Latinos in Michigan than any Republican presidential candidate in a very long time. And James, by the way, who is black, is aiding Trump's prospects there. Mm -hmm. Haley is going way, way out of the limb here. Uh, He says uh, you can follow his company's Twitter feed for more data. Nobody else is saying that any of this stuff is going to swing things in Trump's direction enough for him to pull out the win, except for Kahaley. Uh, Pretty much nobody else even thinks the election is going to be close. Uh, If Kahaley is right, he's the new king of pollsters. If he's wrong... He'll be a laughing stock. Well, he would have been a laughing stock in 2016 because he picked Trump way ahead of time over Hillary. So we shall see. I like the line. What we shall see. Go ahead. What do you got? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Pretty much nobody else even thinks the election is going to be close. What kind of comment is that? Yeah, well, most (laughs) most of posters don't. Look at real clear politics. They think politics. it's going to be a landslide for Biden? Is I think, that I think what they he's think, really saying? Well, I don't know if they think it's a landslide, but they don't think that they think Biden is going to win uh, without any problem. That's okay. what, well, what basically they what, also what, thought they hmm. thought Hillary was going to win. I agree. They thought Hillary would win, and they also knew they had bought off, paid off, and had everything in place for her to win. And the only thing that screwed up that whole little scenario was to, was the voters. You know, was the voters. That's right. So, you know, maybe they think the same thing now. They think that all the Biden payoffs and all the money and, oh, my gosh, all this stuff that's going on has got them synced up and ready we to go. We will see. And, again, they haven't changed their playbook one bit. And it's still Russia, Russia, Russia. Let me just say this, <laughs> all right? This is why the great, from from sports, the great term is it's why you play the game. If you just went on everything that's on paper, there are teams that should never have won a Super Bowl, never won a World Series, etc. But they did. That's why you play the game. And with that, we take our break. We want to talk about TikTok. We want to talk about the mute button coming up in the debate. And we want to talk about Supreme Court nominee Barrett when we come back on the Dave Ellswick Show. Final segment, not final segment, but final segment before the news at the bottom of the hour uh, with Elizabeth Sotolaro, who is my uh, guest host on Tuesdays. Uh, she wants to talk, and I want her to talk, about a story that it broke today uh, about TikTok. And this is an important story. Again, another social media site. And uh, bring us up to date on, on that story, if you would, Elizabeth. Well, would you be concerned to learn that the Obama's National Security Council official is now working for TikTok? He's the director of trust and safety. Well, just as okay. just as an, <laughs> just as concerned I am about uh, the lady who works on Facebook for election integrity, exactly. and uh, also worried about the moderator coming up on Thursday night in the uh, the next uh, debate who's been uh, basically a registered Democrat all of her life, and her family's given thousands upon thousands of dollars to the Democrat Party. And she's a former Biden advisor. Um, I mean, sorry, Obama advisor. Uh, Well, Biden. This person, um, looking for his first name, Jeffrey Collins, is, uh, he says he served as the Director of Office of Europe and Eurasia at the National Security Council 
under Obama's administration. He was the presidential advisor and leader of significant initiatives with European countries, along with regularly advising Obama on breaking regional direct, uh, developments. He is now, <laughs> he's got a really good gig now. He is the, he's in charge of what they call the trust and safety team at TikTok. The trust and safety team. <laughs> I wonder what that entails. Does it say what that entails? I don't know. Let's see. Yeah. Now, TikTok, you understand, is the, remember, that's the app the uh, so many people want to use here in our country that has been totally identified as being a tool of the Communist Party, the Chinese Communist Party yeah. in CCP. our country. Um, let's see. He covers product policy, product design, and moderation processes and handles regional teams. So he's way up there at TikTok telling you what you can read and what you cannot read. Um, he talked in 2013 on his Twitter feed about the Chinese Communist Party that was warning of subversive Western ideas. Now, again, remember, TikTok is a tool of the Chinese Communist Party, has been identified by our, by our government as a tool. Well, it was started um, by a Chinese company. Exactly. Uh, and- this is why Trump's trying to close it down here. And they've been pushing Chinese doctrine. That's right. Let's see about TikTok safety and tr- <laughs> just the name. I'm sorry. I just have to laugh, and I'm not laughing because it's funny. It's just I, you just don't know what else to think about some of this stuff. Right. Trust and safety team. The the uh, hypocrisy is just dripping, just dripping yeah. from all of this because you know, of course, they are the uh, you know the arbiters of what we're all allowed to talk about. Why? Number one, why do they even do it in the first place? Number two, why is it anybody's job to tell anybody else in America what you can talk about? Well, here's the key, um, uh, Elizabeth, is that, and this is more Twitter and and Facebook, because they're the ones who came up with this uh, definition, that they were just going to be a bulletin board. In other words, mm-hmm. you remember when you a were... used to put stuff. Yeah, you remember when you used to work, walk into Kroger or Knights or something like that, and they had a bulletin board, and it had a bunch of, yeah. you know, business cards all on kinds it, of and stuff all kinds of stuff, there. and you would just read it. And uh, that's what Facebook and stuff was going to be. Well, it is not even close to that anymore. You know, again, that, you know, you could look at that on the wall and say, well, those things don't apply to me or that thing doesn't interest me. This thing does. And, you know, you were able to just go through there. And now the trust and safety policy team at TikTok helps ensure that our global community is safe and empowered to create and enjoy content, to create and enjoy content around all of our apps while protecting our brand. Now, this is coming from a job opening advertisement in that group. So you are uh, passionate about safety policy and you wake up excited to make an impact in millions of people's lives. To protect the TikTok brand. Brand. And that that means they will censor anybody who would be detrimental to their brand. Which takes Which us back. Yeah, that takes us back to the Tran- the Communications Act and Segment Two Thirty. Right. All right, that, that makes them a publisher. That's correct. Now it changes things at that point, and we're down to a minute left here. But it leaves us to believe that, uh, and the reason Twitter and uh, 
and we're seeing uh, Facebook being called before Senate committees now, is uh, there's going to be some changes made uh, in the Communications Act. I believe that's going to happen as well. But a lot will depend on the election. Everything, this whole entire topic, will go completely away if Biden is elected. Yeah, 30 seconds. Anything else you You want to put in real quickly? It's just highly alarming. It's just highly alarming. I don't know what else to say about it. If you can hear us talking about this stuff and you're not involved or interested, uh, you better you better be because they're going to come after us. I'm all telling right. you, they're going to come after all of us, social media. All right. Let's get a break in for the news. When we come back, we're going to talk about a mute button at the debate. That's next on the Dave Ellswick Show. Back with us on the Dave Ellswick Show, 6 o'clock hour. Uh Let's talk about the mute button and the moderator uh, for Thursday night's debate, and then we'll finish up talking about an article that used a term called white saverism, saverism, talking about uh, Supreme Court nominee uh, Barrett. And, and the children she adopted in uh, in Haiti. And the, these people that are going after her about the, her adoptions just make me want to puke. They really do. This has been going on since the 80s. People saying that unless you're the same color as the children that you are uh, adopting, it makes you even more racist than a racist, to be honest. So uh, we'll, t- we'll take that up here at the end. But let's go to the mute button. What do you have on that? Well, not only have they changed the topics for Thursday night's debates, because we don't want to talk about foreign policy horrors, not only do we know about the individual who is going to be hosting the debate, now they, they've also decided that we're going to have a mute button, and it's just to keep the other side from interrupting. 90-minute debate is divided into six 15-minute segments. Each candidate has two minutes to deliver uninterrupted remarks. The open discussion portion of the debate will not feature a mute button, but interruptions by either candidate are going to be counted against their time that they're allowed to speak. Mm -hmm. Now, these folks, you know, it's just been a couple, three weeks ago, I guess. Now, I've learned that the Commission on Presidential Debates is yet another leftist-run propaganda organization. They're changing the rules. They're changing the topics. We, you know, what's worse, that uh, uh, Donna Brazile gave the questions to Hillary? Oh, no. Now we have the actual moderators being leftists and Democrats. This thing is a, is a joke. It's just a joke. Okay. Yeah, well, I agree. You know, it's just another way of controlling things. And I don't understand why the Republican Party agrees to this type of stuff. Because it doesn't happen unless both parties Agree to it. Agreed? Is well, that the Trump, not true? The tra- well, they're supposed to be. Now, they changed the topics just, you know, <laughs> the morning after the disastrous debate with, uh, you know, uh, Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris, when she was so uh, trounced by Mr. Pence. The very next morning, they changed the topics. They didn't ask either. Well, as far as we know, we were told they didn't ask either side. They sure didn't ask the Trump campaign. The Trump campaign, it says here, is pressuring the commission to not change the rules. And, you know, of course, I understand his considerations at this point. He needs to get out in front of people 
somehow, I guess there's an argument on both sides. Is it better to just go out there on this debate or would it be a better idea to just cancel and say, look, I agreed on rules. And now you've changed them all. Why should I participate? Well, I, I don't know what would be the I, well, better thing. I understand why they don't do that because the media sure. will beat them up uh, completely, and people who are independents, who many times have no idea, uh, have been just totally blind to this uh, this uh, discrimination within the, the media, uh, won't understand. Here, here's one for you. I saw this on Twitter this morning. <laughs> it was advice for President Trump, and it said, you know, what he should do when he's allowed to speak and ask a question that's a leading question, he should immediately answer with the response to Biden, no matter what the topic is. Uh, you know, for example, if it's about the something he can turn around for Biden laptops, he just says, well, I'm going to I'm going to concede my time to Joe Biden so he can explain Hunter Biden and his laptops. And then stop talking. I found it rather humorous. I think it would be an interesting tactic. <laughs> yeah, I don't disagree. With I, you. I, I concede my time back to Biden and right. let him explain. Well, that's <laughs> this is my whole thing about in the next debate that I hope that the president does. I hope that he allows he controls his emotions more and lets Biden talk. That's all he has to do. Let him talk and then pepper him with questions, all right? He doesn't have to be condescending or anything. Just pepper him with questions, as as we have seen here on this station and why uh, the left doesn't come on my show that often. Uh, when they are questioned, uh, they don't like answering <laughs> questions because they tend to hang themselves. I'll Let me just tell the story about Marion Barry. This is several years back when he was... Uh, d- the district uh, three uh, uh, congressman, and uh, he was. We were talking about there was actually a budget surplus, and I started asking him about the surplus and giving it back to the voters, and he started naming off uh, project after project that they needed to use this surplus for, and uh, by the time he was done, there was no surplus any longer. And I had more than a few voters come up and talk to me and say it was the reason that they did not vote for him again in the election uh, back when uh, uh, the congressman Crawford won. I mean, you know, I mean, Barry retired. He didn't run again because he knew he would lose. Again, those questions get them off balance. I know over the weekend, I was fortunate enough to actually see Leland Vittert on Fox when he confronted this, uh, Ob- uh, sorry, this uh, spokesperson for Biden about these laptop tapes and all the things. And that's what he did. He just kept asking and pushing and asking and pushing. And she finally ended up saying, no one is saying that these things are not legitimate because she got you know, rattled. And that's exactly a tactic that works very well. I'd like to see the same Trump that we saw last uh, weekend. The one that was on the NBC, well, not last weekend, last week on the NBC. Not the way he was treated, but the way he handled the interviewing. And it was an inquisition by, you know, the moderator. It wasn't a town hall. I'd like to see him you know, he looked comfortable sitting there. He was responsive. He was warm and friendly. And he didn't put a call rattle on. And I think that probably is something that would serve him well. 
All right. So before we uh, wrap up this segment, we got some time still left. Let's talk about uh, our next uh, debate moderator. A lot of stuff has come out about her. I still don't understand how they could pick her. I I want somebody who doesn't like either party. All right. That's what I I'd like. Joe Rogan is what I'd like. Oh, that would be so good. That would be so good. I don't know why we have to have a moderator. Why don't we have the old style stand up and, you know, there's so much time and so much time and that's it. And if you have to institute a mute button, because it's really, let's, let's remember this, by the way, it is the left that started that tactic, who has used it successfully for how long, how many people have you seen on television trying to have a panel discussion and the leftist or Democrat continually erupts the, the conservative viewpoint. And now conservatives are starting to use the tactic on them. And by golly, they don't like it. Imagine that. Yeah. Well, no big surprise. You have some more information, though, for us about on the, this, the uh, on this moderator. And her name I'm is Kristen. Steve Scully here. What I'm having her, a hard time. What is her name? Steve, uh, Kristen. What is her last name? I don't have yeah, it in that's, front of me. I can't. Kristen. <laughs> Hang on. I'm getting there. She's. Like say, was a former advisor to Vice President Biden. I, you know, I mean, yeah. I just threw out. I just threw out. You not even check on these Monday people on this stuff. Yeah, that's that's yeah. my whole Kristen thing. Welker, Welker, W-E-L-K-E-R, Welker. Here we go. Her family course, called her a radical left Democrat. Died in the wool. <laughs> yeah, well, her family <laughs> has he, given thousands of dollars, tens of thousands yeah. of dollars to the Democratic Party in Philadelphia. Yeah, well. It's, uh, it, it, you know, interestingly, she completely shut down her Twitter account when they first started talking about Steve Scully. Mm-hmm. When they first said, hey, Mr. Scully is involved with Biden, all of a sudden over here, she shuts down her Twitter account. You know, it's it's so obvious. It's so blatant. And I just don't understand why people can't see what's happening with all of this. Well, I um, think people can see. And I think that they're going to show their displeasure at the polls personally. I hope. I mean, if this all doesn't wake us up, I really fear for the future of our country. I truly do. I mean, it would be like, you know, let's let President Obama be the moderator of the debate. (laughs) I mean, seriously, I'm surprised somebody didn't bring it up or Michelle. Why they didn't? Well, and I promise you, if our side set up a debate with you know Sean Hannity or Mark Levin. They'd laugh us out of the room. You know, I wouldn't, they, you know, yet they expect that we're going to participate. Or Sarah I Sanders. honestly, again, say again. Or Sarah Sanders. Let her be the well, moderator. Maybe. Maybe. Ooh, they wouldn't like that. But I know, but I'm saying that <laughs> these people are the equivalent of that. It's true. It's very true. Again, I would love to see our Republicans go after this fake faux idea of having a presidential commission for debates again once again the you know covers have been pulled back and it is revealed that these people are nothing but propagandists leftists working for the democrat party to elect their socialist candidates so my question got to wake up my question is how do they get on this this committee do we even know the idea how the commission works that's what i'm saying i don't know who gets on it you know 
Of course, uh, again, see, we've having, trusted for years that we thought we knew what was going on with the election commission, and now they again, didn't call me. We found out in the last three weeks. Yeah, they haven't called me to ask me to be on it. <laughs> yeah, they haven't called me on that, as far as that's concerned. So anyway, uh, just something to keep in mind uh, as as uh, Thursday comes up. I'm not expecting a uh, fair debate by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, the occur and uh, that's is it it will be what it will be and uh, there's a lot of information that's out there that i'll be interested to see how the president tries to work it into the debate because i can tell you right now uh this lady is not going to bring up the new york time the new york post article it's, it's, oh it's just, not at all but i know trump will well, yeah, but I'm sure that he will. Well, how will he roll? It? How is he going to to massage it into the the, the debate? That's what's it. There is is a, a way that you've got to do it that doesn't make you look harsh. Do you know what I'm saying? True, true, and, and that's the key. Can he massage it in without it looking ugly? Yeah, I just think well, that, it is ugly. I, I think, mean, when you I look think, at it, it is ugly. Well, it's I don't, be and I don't agree, disagree with you, uh, Elizabeth. But you know how I am about this. There's ways of doing things uh, to oh, make sure. to make the, the the salient points that you're trying to make uh, strong, and there's other ways to do it that just totally people will turn you off. This is a it's a pivotal pivotal point. It's for sure. And, uh, you know, Trump's successfully brought up other topics and issues. And we just have to trust that he'll be able to handle that. Um, Again, I'd like to see the Trump I saw at the last town hall. I want him. I want him to finish it up by saying you're fired. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Ooh, that would be awesome. (laughs) I'm just kidding. All right. We got to get a break. End up in point and say you're fired. Okay. So Uh, when we come back. Uh, I was mentioning that we would talk about the term white saviorism, all right? When we come back, I'll tell you what the term white savior means. Ism. All right, there's an ism now they put on the end of it, but it was a term called white savior. I'll tell you what that means, and then we'll talk about how it pertains to our Supreme Court nominee, Barrett, when we return for the final segment of the Dave Ellswick Show. Final segment, Dave Ellswick Show, 6 o'clock hour. Story that's out is uh, dealing with uh, Supreme Court nominee Barrett and her uh, adoption of two Haitian children. And I'm just telling you, the left is going crazy about this. No, according to the left, now this is my words on this, no good uh, thing goes unpunished. I think it's a good thing when you see abject poverty and terrible, terrible situations in some of these third world nations and you go, you know what? I live a pretty good lifestyle here in the good old USA and I can, I can help out. I mean, this is why I, I work with groups like uh, over in Rwanda and where they're helping Rwanda children who, for most, water. well, water, mattresses, education, yep. they don't get any of that. Medicine. And so 
we uh, we help those kids out by taking them out of that abject poverty, putting them in a situation where they can become the best that they can become. But there are people now that they call this the term being a white savior. A white savior sometimes combined with savior complex to white, uh, to, so that the people write white savior complex refers to a white person who provides help to non-white people in a self-serving manner. Now, I don't see... And to them, everybody helping is doing it in a self-serving manner. Because because of the color of your skin, you're not allowed to try to help somebody else. Come on. Do you remember... What is wrong with these people? This was a big topic back in the late 80s, early 90s. Yes, I remember. I remember. Um, I thought it went away. A lot of people were were, uh, adopting children from African nations. And when that happened, suddenly black people stood up and said, this is wrong. You're taking these people away from their culture. No, they were starving to death. These children, say, might, these children yeah. were dying. Now we're talking about the poverty that we see of the children sitting with the big bloated bellies and the flies crawling on their eyes. What is wrong with helping? Well, you can help, but only if you're of uh, that same person's color. I don't buy that. I don't buy that at all. And But that's what some people say. I mean, I, I think that's, to, to me, the person who says, I can't help somebody because I'm white and they're black because they're starving to death, that's the height of racism. That's the height of, of just, course it is. that's just terrible. It's terrible turning it completely upside down on its head and, again, demonizing a trait or or pattern that is only helpful in most cases, like any other thing. It's not perfect. We're not perfect human beings. But, you know, demonizing something that helps people, helps children. Oh, my gosh, what is wrong? What is wrong when our culture celebrates this type of thing versus the good? And I have always asked this question as well. And that is, if a gentleman comes to me and has a nonprofit group, and it's and it's feeding inner city children who, for whatever reason, is not are not getting enough food, not being fed enough during the day, and let's say I got a lot of money. And I I give a million dollars to that organization. What's the difference in me doing that and me going out and adopting children from a third world nation to give them the same kind of help? What's the difference? What is the difference? The second is actually a greater commitment on your part because you're bringing that person into your home and raising them and you know, trying to provide for them and everything else. It's, so, you know, relatively easy, I suppose, to write a check. But, you know, to commit your life to, to helping children have better lives by doing that, but, but, but again, there's nothing, not, there's nothing not wrong being, with that. Am I not being a white savior, whether I write a check or whether I adopt? 
according to them, any, I, I guess they're going to reject our money then. They're not going to solicit us anymore for all these charities for children. Is that how that works? I don't know. I'm do just I, do saying, I get to opt out of the list because of the color of my skin? And, and let me just say that that is not saying that that is the way most people, most minority people look at this. It is a small group of people and small-minded people as well. Uh, I don't see them going out and adopting these children. I don't see them Mm-mm. giving, and maybe they do. I don't know. I don't have the, the their, their specific finances, but giving money to do it. And why would they want to stop it if they can't? That's the key. That's the key. That That's the whole thing of getting into uh you know the purity of race uh and saying you know if you were german and you had a white kid you wouldn't let a black uh, family raise them uh because we'd rather that they starve i mean think about that i mean i'm flipping it on its head here well but let's go one step further when i was a young person it was unheard of in many areas of our country for blacks and whites to marry each other come on we're not going back to that. That is not okay. No. That's not the kind of people that we are. We are not, you know, the, the exterior surface of your skin is about the only difference in people. You know, I mean, we think, a lot, you know, we, we all have families. We all have, you know, goals and aspirations. And we all should have a uh, fair chance at being in a country like our country where we have the ability to work on our own and have help from people who are willing to help without being accused of some crazy, crazy ulterior motive that like, like saviorism. Yeah, and unbelievable. Yeah. With that said, Elizabeth, we're out of time. I appreciate you joining me today and and talking to me about these subjects that we talk about on a Tuesday. I'll see you next Tuesday. Thank you very much. I know that you're working hard. Uh, on the tax uh, reallocation uh, over there in Faulkner County. Good luck on that. Vote for it. All right. Vote for it. We'll talk about Thank it Thank you again. so much. All right. Have a great day. You all have a great day, a great evening. I will not be here tomorrow. David Ray will be here. My wife's having surgery. And uh, I'll be broadcasting from my home on Thursday and Friday, just so you'll be aware of that. Tom Cotton going to be with us on Thursday. 